Higher education is under pressure these days. It has been for a while now, but the COVID-19 pandemic may well be the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. And this test is bringing to light some of the fragilities that have been under the radar until now. With me this week, I have someone who has a deep love for higher education and for students and graduate researchers, and who has explored the question of professional outcomes of PhDs in different domains, Paul Yaknin. Paul Yaknin is Tomlinson Professor of Shakespeare Studies at McGill University. From 2013 to 2019, he was director of the Early Modern Conversions Project. Before that, he directed the Making Publics Project from 2005 to 2010. His ideas about the social life of art were featured on the CBC Radio Ideas series, The Origins of the Modern Public. In 2009-2010, he served as president of the Shakespeare Association of America. Among his publications are the books Stage Rights and the Culture of Playgoing in Early Modern England, editions of Richard II and The Tempest, and edited books such as Making Publics in Early Modern Europe and Forms of Association. His book, Making Publics in Shakespeare's Playhouse, is forthcoming. For the past eight years, he has been working on higher education policy. He leads the Trace McGill Project, tracking the career pathways of over 5,000 PhD graduates from across the university and telling the stories of over 150 of them. He publishes non-academic essays about Shakespeare and modern life, including titles such as Alzheimer's Disease, What Would Shakespeare Do? and Tragedy as a Way of Life. So if I say to a young PhD researcher, I'm not going to use the word student, um, so have you thought about the different careers that might be open to you when you graduate? It's as if I'm saying, I don't think you're good enough for an academic job. And I'm afraid that the person will also take it that way. So how do we change thinking about the PhD as well as the programs? And there's one very good way to do that, and that is to get as many stories, as many voices of people who graduated and who say, yeah, I got a PhD in English. I'm um, executive director of CBC Ideas, okay? Uh, and that is an actual case that we've 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 covered a great deal with Trace. Um, that person conveys to people doing PhDs now that there are other pathways. Not only are they entirely legitimate and respectable, they're to be sought after. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. I'd really love to just have a conversation about the current situation, maybe, because I, I've been following the, the social media, the academic social media, and there's a lot of anxiety, um, insecurity all around this COVID situation to do with going back or not going back to universities, <laughs> but also uh, just to, in general, talk about this question of, you know, 21st century, what's going to happen with with the PhD 
and um, and and what's happening maybe based on the the experience and the numbers that you've seen uh, on uh, with Trace McGill. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is something that we see happening in the United States, especially at the top ranked universities on the humanities side, mm-hmm. which is a, a number of top universities have suspended their PhD recruitment okay. in the humanities. Okay, yeah, that's... And um, so we're talking about that. And and um, what they're saying, uh, these universities, is they're suspending their PhD programs in literature, in art history, in musicology, uh, across the humanities, because of the dire j- academic job market. Okay. Now, I feel very strongly that this is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the wrong thing to do for a number of reasons. One reason is that the academic job market has been dire for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. This is not news, and it should not be news to anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, All of the studies that we've done in Canada across the board show us that there's about a 25% of the graduating students who get tenure-track jobs. That's a rough estimate, but it's fairly accurate. Mm. Uh, it's certainly pretty clear in the work that we've done with Trace that it's about 25%. Mm-hmm. Um, so the job market is dire. It's always been dire. Um, what the humanities graduate programs at the elite universities in the United States should do is not suspend recruitment, but rather start thinking about how to change their programs Mm -hmm. so that their programs, without dumbing them down in any way, without changing their essential nature as curiosity-driven research, that's the focus, Mm -hmm. they nevertheless are, are, are altered, they're adjusted, especially in spirit, but also in form, so that they lead and they are seen to lead mm. these brilliant, hardworking young scholars to a multiplicity of career paths, not the academic one. I think it's really interesting what you're saying. And especially if we think a lot of the issues that, that are affecting people today that need to be addressed today, PhDs coming from the humanities... Are, are, you know, should have and are going to have a lot to say and a lot to do on those questions because not everything is viruses, not everything is, you know, epidemiology. A lot of it is society, societal choices. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is a bit worrisome uh, what you say, and I wasn't aware of, of this kind of freeze that you, that you're talking about uh, on on that yeah. side. Uh, it's a bit worrisome that that somehow was the, the, the reflex of some of these universities. Yes. It's, qu- it's, quite, it's quite disheartening. Uh, instead of, because, because crises are hard to deal with. There's no question about that. But one of the ways to approach a crisis is that it, it's hard. We're going to suffer through this. But it's an op- also and should be an opportunity to think creatively and to think in new ways. Because what we've been doing, now we know, doesn't work, right? So the global climate emergency should, should bring us very clearly to the understanding, it has for many of us, but not enough of us, that what we've been doing for the past 200 years, mm. it's not working. 
uh, it's making things worse. How do we change what we're doing? Uh, and I think we need to do the same thing within the universities. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it and it and it's very disheartening to me to see you know the, among the best programs across the United States that the um, leaders on the humanities side are saying, oh well, let's just close up our shops. And because the other thing that they do by suspending PhD um, intake they disappoint these extraordinary people who worked so hard to be eligible to get into the top programs mm-hmm. so that they're breaking hearts. Yeah. But it's not only that universities, especially the elite universities run on the fresh blood on the fresh ideas of young scholars. Of course, if we keep them out, we will start to dry up. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, from what I'm getting, someone is taking this decision now, which is kind of, in a way easy to take you just close the tap and and you know and you you dealt with some issue that somehow you uh, in in your meetings you decided it was something you needed to deal with but then the clock starts ticking and this generation that doesn't get in won't be there three three six five years from now when we'll need them i i totally agree and uh now Mm -hmm. You specifically here at McGill University have been very involved in the Trace McGill project. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what it is. And sure. and uh, my question to you based on that is, around you and at McGill University here in Montreal, do you see uh, do you see some good ideas, some some uh, uh, good reactions to this crisis that might uh, you know be inspiration? for for other uh, other groups or other universities out there okay that's a that's a great big question let me take you back um so i'm going to take you back about nine years um and it actually goes back further than that because i've been uh, a professor for a very long time um over 30 years mm-hmm. i've supervised many phd students I knew at, at some in some place in my mind, I knew about the dire academic job situation. Mm. I, of course, knew all about it when I was a PhD student <laughs> many, many years ago at the University of Toronto, because it was dire then, and it's still dire now. But somehow, I put it out of my mind. I willfully ignored it as I supervised all of these wonderful young people. Some of them got tenure-track jobs. Uh, Some of them didn't, Mm -hmm. and it's about half and half. And here's a confession. Uh, I always assumed that they would get tenure-track jobs and they should get tenure-track jobs. Mm -hmm. And I I should have known, of course, that many wouldn't because of the academic job market. Mm -hmm. And somehow I didn't process that. And at some point, often in my own mind, If one of my really talented PhD uh, students, graduates now, uh, didn't get a tenure track job, I would think, is there something the matter with them? So that I would never say anything like that, but I, I, I confess to that just to show how this culture of the academy has grown up inside me and shaped me from the inside and controlled my thoughts and my feelings. At a certain point, I began to realize that 
even good people can think unethical thoughts. Even good people can behave unethically. Because I'm sure I conveyed to all of my PhD supervisees that I was expecting them to get tenure track jobs, that they should get tenure track jobs. So the culture percolated through me into them. If they, if those who didn't get tenure track jobs felt for one moment after having graduated that they were failures, I bear the guilt for that. They were not failures. Nobody who completes a PhD should ever for one second think that they are a failure. So it began to, I began to get this idea. And what happened is I was a director of the Institute for the Public Life of Arts and Ideas at McGill. And the executive director, Lee Yetter, who is now uh, one of the senior administrators in the university, came in to me and she said, uh, there's a shirk program about tra um, transition to the labor market. Uh, and I said, get out of here. That's not what we do here. We're a humanities center. Anyway, she did, she did the application and she got the grant. But because she was faculty, I was the PI. And we worked together on this and we ended up writing the white paper on the future of the PhD in the humanities. And then I really began to get it. I really began to get that something was wrong with the programs and something was wrong with the culture. And we went on from there. So Lee and I wrote a piece that was in policy options about how we have to change the PhD. And coming out of the white paper, we did a national project called um, Future Humanities, where we gathered all the universities in Canada. We asked each university to start a discussion on their campus about how the humanities PhD might be made more effective, more mm. worthwhile. And every university took part. They all produced videos or think pieces or, um, you know, kind of group documents and they sent them to us. We shared them across the country with all the universities. And then we got everyone in Montreal together in 2013. And we let off with a, uh, a plenary session with about 35 or 40 PhD students from across the country. And they told us, the administrators, the faculty members, what was important for them, what their aspirations mm -hmm. were. And coming out of that conference, we started Trace and we did mm -hmm. Trace the pilot project, which was a national project. We tracked the uh, outcomes, career outcomes of about 4,000 PhD graduates in the humanities from across mm -hmm. the country. And we added something that no one else had done. Um, and it was all the work of PhD student researchers. They did mm -hmm. this work. They reached out to the grads and asked them if they would consent to be interviewed, the kind of thing you're mm -hmm. doing now and doing so well. And I think about 400 of them said yes. So we created an archive, not only of statistical information about PhD outcomes, but also their stories. And we went on to do the uh, second TRACE project, again, a national project, a smaller number of universities, but bringing in the social sciences and, and, and the fine arts. And then we brought it home to McGill. And TRACE McGill is a project that, is, that has tracked the career outcomes of more than 5,000 PhD graduates from across every faculty in the university. And uh, we are, we've now, I think, wrapped up the interviewing. We've interviewed, I think, 300 uh, graduates. And again, I say we, but it wasn't mm -hmm. we, me. It was these extraordinary young student researchers who did the work. And they've learned so much mm -hmm. from it. 
And many of those stories and interviews are getting posted online and what we're doing also, as well as telling the stories. And here's the thing about the narrative. The stats won't actually make visible the pathway. That's true. By which a graduate gets from point A to point W. (laughs) The story will. It will make visible the, the career pathway. And we must make visible as many career pathways as possible so that in-program students and also perhaps faculty members begin to get the idea that the PhD leads to other places besides the academy. And that's what we've yeah, been doing. It's, it's a very, very interesting program. I, I really love the, the concept and I, I, you know, I can appreciate the, the width, the, the span of that, that you need to reach to, to get all these people and also all the work that these, these graduate students are putting in, getting these, you know, doing these interviews and getting, and getting these narratives. It's, uh, it's super interesting. And, uh, and, uh, I, you know, I think it's, it's very inspiring in, in that sense of it shows what, what's the actual journey that these people, uh, that these people follow and with all the twists and turns that they, that they might have, you know, whereas just the numbers, can't, don't don't give you the granularity. Now, I have two questions based on what you said. First, if you pick up the white paper today, are there some boxes you can you can tick, you know, or or is it still very very you know, you know uh, okay, what's the word? Uh, maybe, maybe you can give me the word, but it's very timely still, uh, and and it's still some something to read and to to base you know projects on today. That's my first question. Okay, it's, a, it's, it's great. I mean, maybe we've made progress on three of the recommendations. Um, so first, one of the things we said is anybody who's doing a PhD is already a grown-up. They should think of themselves as grown-ups. Um, they, should, they should undertake to make their voices heard inside the academy and outside the academy. And I think that realization that anybody doing a PhD is actually a grown-up and not a kid, not still an apprentice, uh, which is the model that is so dominant within the university. That's beginning to to gain traction. Um, I think another thing where we're seeing a bit of movement is one of the things we said is that uh, the PhD in the humanities need not be uh, a book. You know, one of my friends said to me, the PhD in the humanities says to a young person, go in your room and don't come out until you've written a book. And, you know, I think that is so true about what is still the dominant model within the humanities PhD. Uh, So what we suggested, recommended in the white paper is that we imagine the possibility that a PhD thesis could be a a kind of portfolio of interrelated um, uh, works, some written, perhaps some video, uh, perhaps some online. And I think we're seeing some movement, some opening uh, to that kind of innovative thinking about the PhD. Uh, One of the recommendations where I think we're seeing real movement, we said universities have extremely good career advising uh, programs for under, their undergraduate population. But we don't, what we didn't see when we wrote the, the white paper was that there was much going on on the graduate side. 
And I think the universities have really moved on that. So I think the University of Toronto in Canada started by hiring this wonderful PhD graduate who had a lot of experience in different fields to help PhD students think more broadly and variously about career possibilities. So I think we're seeing real movement there. And certainly at McGill, we're doing a lot on that, on that side. It's interesting. I, I just uh, saw a conversation uh, or had a conversation where someone was telling me that uh, where, in the place where she did a PhD, she did feel exactly this, that whatever resources were there for students were very geared towards undergrads and not uh, uh, and this may have been five ten years ago and th and like you say things are changing i think uh, you can see it across you know different universities and it's, it's great to see now um the one thing you mentioned about being a grown-up <laughs> that also has come up and uh you know sometimes uh some people that I have talked to and actually interviewed have, and that are PhD students still have mentioned that, well, I have stopped saying PhD student. When I present myself, I say PhD researcher. And it's, it changes the mindset of the person saying it. It's, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, they come from a place of I'm a worker in a, in a workspace doing research. And, and I'm, not, I'm not, because student has these connotations of, of being you know, a trainee, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which in a way you are, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't give this idea of an adult that is now contributing to society in a way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, when they use these, this term, they, they felt that the person they, they're talking to also sees them differently in this, in this more, you know, grown up way that you, that you were mentioning. And um, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Now um, I have felt because I've, I've been in different career panels. Uh, I've, I've talked with with graduate students at different you know stages of of their their PhD, and I have felt that when you start a PhD, often there's kind of this um, uh, cognitive dissonance when someone talks to you about different career options and and Plan B in terms of careers because mm -hmm. you just started, you're aiming for you know being a PI, getting a Nobel, you know, and someone's telling you maybe start already looking at other possibilities at the end of the PhD. Can you talk a little bit about that and about uh, when it's healthy or, or ideal to start thinking about it? What's your take on that, on that aspect? This is a very, very uh, great and even urgent question um, because, and I hear you from the inside and I, and I feel, I still, after all these years doing this work, I still very, I still feel very complicated about it. Um, so if I say to a young PhD researcher, I'm not going to use the word student. Um, so have you thought about the different careers that might be open to you when you graduate? It's as if I'm saying, I don't think you're good enough for an academic job. And I'm afraid that the person will also take it that way. So how do we change thinking about the PhD as well as the programs? And there's one very good way to do that, and that is to get as many stories, as many voices of people who graduated and who say, yeah, I got a PhD in English. I'm um, executive director of CBC Ideas. There you go. That's, that's Okay. <laughs> Uh, and that is an actual case that we've 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 covered a great deal with Trace. Mm. Um, that person 
conveys to people doing PhDs now that there are other pathways. Not only are they entirely legitimate and respectable, they're to be sought after. Mm -hmm. Because what Greg Kelly did, he got a PhD from Oxford. Um, He was offered a postdoc at Stanford. He turned it down. Okay. Um, he kind of bided his time. He put the, made some money. And then someone said, you know, you can pitch to the CBC. So he'd done his PhD thesis on, on Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. And I think he pitched to the CBC was a, a radio show on the trial of Oscar Wilde. Okay. So he didn't change what he was interested in. He changed how he was going to deliver it. <laughs> it was picked up and it was broadcast nationally and it started his career. <laughs> so we need more and more people like that telling their stories. And then people like me and people who are doing PhDs won't automatically think that a multiplicity of career pathways means failure. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very inspiring story. I, I, hadn't, I, I wasn't aware of it. And again, I, I think it's a very representative of the diversity of things you can do with your PhD. Now, the, the thing that I'm wondering, and I'm not aware right now... Uh, uh, of how universities are promoting their PhD programs and whether this message is start you know starting to seep into the promotion you know the the what, whatever way universities try to attract students into their PhD programs is it something that that is that is start that some some of you within university are thinking about and trying to implement or is it there, is there still a lot of work to be done on that side of the 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 um, what what's the discourse when you when you as a university are are trying to attract students into a PhD program? Well, a, a, a couple of things. One is that the first answer has to be no. Um, there hasn't been, as far as I can see, a great deal of movement in terms of how PhD programs are advertising themselves, their strengths, Mm -hmm. in order to recruit PhD um, researchers into their programs. Um, And there are a couple of reasons. One is that the culture is still very much in place. Mm -hmm. It's a culture of the academy. And I I have nothing in it. I have nothing against the culture of the academy, except that we need to open it up a little bit. We need to open up some of the doors and some of the windows. I love research in the humanities. Mm -hmm. I love curiosity-driven research. Um, This is where I live my life most of the time. Uh, And I don't want to disable or or suggest that there's something wrong with that. But I think that what we still see is that the universities, especially, I think, on the humanities side, which is the side I know best, are promoting themselves as centers of academic excellence with a record of training people for the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing to say is that I think it's different from one faculty to the next. Of course. Uh, and that is something that I've learned working on Trace McGill, because if you have an epidemiology PhD, um, you might continue in the academy, but there are many other things that you can do and that people are doing with their PhDs in epidemiology. The same thing goes for, um, for engineering, so that when we interviewed uh, people uh, as potential researchers with the project from engineering, you know, we'd ask each person the question, just tell us where you see your career pathway going after you complete your PhD. Mm-hmm. 
And for the humanities um, candidates, it was mostly toward the academy. But it was very different to our surprise, because my colleague who was helping me do the interview is also a PhD in the humanities, that people in epidemiology, people in engineering, and in other fields were saying, yeah, the academy is pretty interesting, but there's lots going on outside the university that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the things that we need to do is talk to each other across the university. That's partly what the Trace Project is doing, so that we learn from each other. And there's so much to learn, even inside the university, from how other, how other uh, faculties are doing their work, uh, how they present themselves, how they think of themselves, and even what counts as P- a PhD thesis yeah, yeah. In, other, in other departments and other faculties. That's something that we can learn from. Yeah. And what you say is important because... Uh, you know some of these conversations and maybe even conversations i've had may uh because i'm i come from the life sciences and you know that's my frame of mind when i'm having these conversations and it's true that you cannot uh, lump everyone together before going on with my conversation with paul i just wanted to thank you for being a listener of the show my hope is that after each episode you'll have at least one main take home message one actionable item you can implement in your career exploration. This year, I want to bring you more with Papa PhD. I've recently started to have listener check-ins on Instagram, where I let you share your academic and career journey so far and answer some of your questions live. Also, for you who are a new listener, I've just curated themed collections of episodes I call Starter Packs to allow you to catch up on all the conversations and easily find the ones that interest you. You can find them by visiting papaphd.com forward slash start. And I have big plans for the podcast in 2021, like improving the accessibility of each interview by having someone prepare and upload clean transcripts, or being able to better thank guests for their generosity and time coming on the show, with a gift, for example. Bringing Papa PhD to you every week in the current format is a lot of hard work, so to help keep the project afloat, I've set up a new way for you to support the show a Patreon. To be clear, you don't have to be a patron to listen to Papa PhD. It's free and it will always be. And you have my profound appreciation for tuning in each week and for talking about the show with your friends. But for you who want to help me maintain the quality of the show and potentially bring to life some of the cool ideas I have for it, you now have a simple way to do so. Just go to papaphd.com forward slash Patreon and choose one of the tiers or create your own. Again, Thank you for being a listener. Now, let's get back to the interview. Um, now, one thing that that I was that I wanted to ask in the beginning was uh, had to do with the results uh, that of these years of Trace McGill and mm-hmm. and the echoes that those results may already have had in the meetings you have had in decisions that have been made. Can you talk a little bit about about that in terms of um what, you know what those number what those numbers may have already translated into in new ideas in new um, approaches to to these problems I think well, there are a number of things one is that um, with trace McGill as with trace more generally and the work you're doing is that one of the goals is to create a mentoring community there there are all of these people, more than 5,000, just the cohorts from 2008 to 2018, graduating from McGill, um, more than 5,000 PhD grads who have a lot of experiential real-life knowledge 
about what happens to you after you complete your PhD. And so what we're trying to do is uh, create a network so that people who are in program, even people who are considering um, doing a PhD can reach out to um, grads and ask to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that what we did on the website, as you know, is <laughs> at the bottom of a number of the narratives, there's a button and the button says connect. Uh, and we're trying to get the word out to the in-program researchers, the people who are doing their PhDs now, that they should feel most welcome to hit that button. And that button will take them to the project manager who will reach out to the grad, ask the grad if he or she or they will be willing to talk. And most of the grads who've agreed to have the connect button know exactly what they're doing and have a real stake in helping others. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's most important for us to do is to create that mentoring community because it's a way of getting those other stories prominently into the conversation. And that's one way to, to change the, the culture. There's another piece here that let me just bring to the yeah. table and that's equity, diversity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. And it, it's increasingly important. And one of the things we've said to the deans from the very beginning when we started to think about Trace McGill was that we want to tell the stories of the, the people who've come to McGill, people of color, who've come to McGill and done PhDs and what they've done with those mm. PhDs. Because we want to, and we want to put that on the website. We want to put it on the university website and on the faculty websites so that if there are people of color who are thinking about what they want to do with their lives, and they wander over to, say, the engineering faculty at McGill, and they go, oh, that person looks like mm. me. Uh, and so one of the things that is so important for us to do is to tell the stories of all kinds of people uh, and, and, and be really sensitive and thoughtful about it. And one of the great things about doing the interview, it's not just stats. It's the, it's the person's own words mm. uh, that are there on the website. So I think the EDI piece of what we're doing is, is a really important thing. It's about, it's about changing the university. Mm -hmm. it's, about, it's about not only changing the way the university thinks about how it, 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 it is developing its premier educational program, the PhD, mm -hmm. but also thinking about social justice as a piece of that premier uh, educational program. It's true, and I can confirm that the button works. Uh, you click on it, and people get back to you, and are in, and have very uh, interesting converse conversations. So, if uh, any of the listeners out there just go, and we'll share the link later on to the Trace McGill website. All these narratives go go there if a profile interests you, and the, the button is there, and the person agreed to to you know to be contacted click on it it's it's you know it'll be worth your time and you'll have a new connection and who knows a new bridge to a future a future job and uh, i i can i can really attest to this uh, and again you 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 mentioned people of color uh, you know men women and because i think i agree in one thing which is um it's really important to bring everyone to 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 campus. And if if you talked about something, you said one you said one word a couple of times in the conversation that I find is really important and that really kind of connects us all who end up going to do PhDs. It's curiosity. You you mentioned mm -hmm. it a couple of times, and I think it's really really important. And you, if after your undergrad your curiosity is strong enough that you want to go spend, you know, three, four, five, depending on where, but six years 
you know, looking into something very, very, you know, pointy, very, uh, that, you know, discover something new that no one has before, even though maybe you don't want to be a professor, but you have that strong curiosity to know more and to discover independently of, of your, your gender, independently of the color of your skin, go, you know, come to university and then take advantage of this great institution that, like you mentioned, is geared toward academic excellence, but you can do so much more afterwards. I, I'm 100% with you on that. I think that that is the most ignored and most important foundational feature of what we're talking about. Um, all of the research that I've done that others have done that has been done in the United States tends to ignore the individual, the individual's curiosity, their passion for research mm -hmm. because, and the closing of the programs in the United States are, are shutting people out of their desire to learn more about something that is they're passionately interested in. It's tragic. Yeah. It is tragic, and, and it's because I think that we have ignored in so much of the research that we've done this piece. The narrative gets at it, but none of the statistics get at mm -hmm. it. That people are willing to invest five, six, seven years of their lives in a PhD, they better know that they love it. Yeah. Um, they better know that it is crucially important for how they live their lives and how they flourish as human beings. Uh, and I think that's so important. That, that let's bring the personal back into the picture, mm -hmm. bring the person back into the picture, uh, and bring that, the person's curiosity and their love of research in, into the picture. The universities do that well. Mm -hmm. um, we don't make it part of our, of our pitch <laughs> to potential new students because we're kind of embarrassed to talk about how much we care about what we do. We want to be more down to earth. We want to talk about PhD outcomes. We want to talk about percentage of our grads who have tenure track jobs in research universities. Um, all of that is important. There's no question that that's important, but what is the foundation of all of this? You know, let's go back. Let's go back to Socrates and about what's going on for him yeah. about understanding the world. That is, that is that is definitely true. And what I have seen from the interviews that I have done and the people I've been talking with is that after a PhD, people who do not stay in academia, they end up finding jobs where they can still feed their curiosity because they they went through this ordeal, <laughs> they learned yes. these skills, this way of thinking, and then organizations, companies want people who can keep discovering new things, new ways of thinking about old problems, etc., etc. And uh, I, I just found it very, you said it, I think, uh, two or three times in the beginning of the, of the uh, conversation, it really, you know, it really rung a bell, uh, the, this word curiosity. And, uh, and I do think that, you know, whenever you see stories of people who are first-generation PhD students, often you see that what drives them is a very deep-seated curiosity about a, about a specific subject or or just curiosity about, like you said, how does the world, how does the universe work? <laughs> it could be just that. So, Let me bring another piece to what you're saying. Uh, it's curiosity. One of the features of the PhD program, which makes it different from every other uh, program in the university, 
educational program in the university is that PhD graduates can't graduate unless they uh, contribute significant new knowledge to the world. Mm -hmm. That's a requirement of the degree across the university system. Mm -hmm. So the curiosity is central, but the curiosity has to be productive. Yes. The PhD researcher has to cultivate the knowledge and the skills that will allow them to come up with new answers to new questions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just a matter of kind of spending your time going about the world, looking at different things. You actually have to pull it together into new knowledge. And I think that to a large degree, we have lost sight of the fact that is at the center of the PhD <laughs> program, which is that it is intellectual entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. it's, about, it's about developing new ideas, new ways of understanding. Uh, and the world needs those now more than ever. Definitely. And to, to reduce the number of PhDs is, as you said, a tragedy. Not only for the people who want to do PhDs, not only for the universities that will suffer because of the lack of new, new intellectual blood, but also for the world that is going to miss these people who get trained to develop their curiosity into new ideas and new answers to questions that we have. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's true. And, uh, well, now we're almost reaching the, the end part of the interview. And uh, sure. I think now what I really, taking what, what you said and uh, thinking of listeners out there who might be considering doing a PhD, uh, even if, like I was mentioning, you know, no one in their family has before, and even if their interest... You know, and irrespectively of if, whether their interest is in engineering, is in literature, is you know in in social sciences, um, a lot of people out there, because of the the situation with the COVID crisis, the the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, hiring freezes left and right, like you say, uh, freezes in in enrolling into PhD programs, which I'm I'm still boggled <laughs> that, that that with what you shared, um, but you know, forgetting that, that last aspect, um, if for people out there and maybe thinking of undergraduates who are, who, you know, who are gradu graduating and considering is a PhD, uh, something I, I should worth investing in at this time. And, um, how can I today with a PhD contribute to solving some of these very dire issues that we're going through today do you have a, a couple of words for them of, of inspiration and, and of orientation a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that it's very important to start conversations with faculty at departments that you're interested in if you're thinking of doing a PhD. And those conversations include just what you said. How will this PhD help me fulfill my aspirations? How will it help me fulfill Uh, this desire I have to know more and to be productively curious in this area of study. Um, and then another thing that I've learned from many people that I've interviewed and I've learned slowly over my own life is that it's important also to cultivate uh, work outside the academy as well as inside the academy and work outside the academy that can dovetail with work inside the academy. Uh, University of British Columbia has a really great program called the Public Scholars Initiative, mm -hmm. where they pay PhD researchers to take their skills and their questions to different places outside 
the academy for a certain amount of time okay. and develop the networks and these skills that they need to take their knowledge and their, and their intellectual skills and their intellectual entrepreneurship to other places. So I think it's very important to look around at, what, at the different universities. When you decide what university, what department might, might be the best one for you, go and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Talk to the graduate program director and talk to the faculty members who might be your supervisors about what and open up those conversations because I think that there's a real there's a real sense of ferment within the university system and and faculty members even faculty members as old as me are thinking about how we can do a better job how we can open our ears to what our PhD students are talking about what they're thinking about. So I think it's so important to have those conversations. It's so important to open up other networks that are outside the academic network and to, and to, and to pursue uh, um, a kind of intellectual mobility that the present culture of the university tends to frown on. Mm-hmm. That, that's very good advice. And now thinking of students who are in their PhD and, and maybe towards the end of their PhD and a bit stressed about the situation of Am I going to be able to finish because maybe my research is now totally frozen? I can't go to the lab or to, you know, to my department. Uh, do you have uh, some some words for them as to how to deal with maybe this anxiety? What maybe they can do in the situation where they might be stuck at home? Uh, uh, what's your experience with your students lately? Do you have an do you have a feeling from interacting with them of of what they're dealing with at this point in, in, you know, to do with this whole situation of, uh, of insecurity and uncertainty? Uh, in a small way, of course, a lot depends on what kind of research the, the researchers are doing. Uh, if they're doing um, work on the, on the life sciences, um, we better hope the universities are able to make the labs available to mm-hmm, them. Of course. <laughs> and we're working really hard to do that. If they're on the humanities and they need to do research at archives in England or in Paris, um, they're going to have to do something else until they can go, go to those archives. Um, we do have an extraordinarily fast expanding uh, online resources on the humanities side. So that's helping people a great mm. deal. Gill's got a, a deal with the Hathi Trust that makes books I didn't know I would ever be able to get my hands on appear on my computer screen. Wow. So there's a, lot, there's a lot that is there that we can work with. Um, how to deal with the anxiety? Conversations. Uh, go on the Trace website, hit the connect button. Talk to people who've been there before you. That's so important. Uh, w- connect with Papa PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're creating this large mentoring community and, and that kind of conversation with people who've been there, been through the kinds of things that you're going through now, that's going to be really helpful. And also talk to the faculty, talk to your supervisor. Um, I know this is hard. Many times PhD researchers don't want to say to their supervisor, I'm going through a really hard time. I don't know what's going on. I don't know I'm going to be able to finish. I think it's time that we stop doing that. I think it's time that we recognize that we're all grown-ups, and that if we have a real problem, we should talk to people and just know that most of the faculty actually care about their PhD supervisees. Mm-hmm. They really do. Um, and, and although so many of us haven't had those real-life conversations, 
I think many of us like me are ready to have those real life conversations. So the undergraduates don't have any problem with this. Mm-hmm. They, they're very willing to open up to their profs, mm-hmm. but the, but the graduate students, especially the PhD students have some problems. So I say conversation is absolutely crucial. Um, and also use all the resources that are available to you in terms of, What's going to happen after you get your PhD, which of course is also a source of considerable anxiety, is that the more time you spend reading the stories of people, the more that will tend to quell your anxiety. Um, Check out Greg Kelly's story, the guy who's the executive producer of CBC Ideas. Mm. Um, Check out their Daniel Barclay's story, which we recently posted on the Trace website. She's a PhD in English. She's at UBC helping people develop their career uh, options, doing important work. Check out my dear friend, Lee Yetter, who is helping to run McGill University with her PhD in history from Brown. Um, There are lots and lots of people who are, um, who've been through this and who have uh, remunerative and deeply fulfilling careers. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> well, you're you're hitting so much, so many marks for me. You, though, you know, again, you were mentioning conversations, and it's true that we probably cannot talk face to face with a lot of people today. But the, with the technology that's now, uh, you know, in everyone's phone, it's true that uh, it it would be, uh, you know, a, sh- a shame to miss the opportunity of now, you know, being in your, you know, in your office, in your <laughs> in your living room talking with these people who are now pretty, you know, certainly have time to spend 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, sharing their experience with you. And again, for the listener out there, out of experience, I can tell you, people are glad to share these these experiences and to help people like you who are now going through what they went through, you know, five, yes. five, 10 years ago. They, they're glad to do it. So don't miss this opportunity. And, uh, and, it's i hadn't thought of it as a um a way to quell the anxiety but of course of course it is uh, thank you thank you paul uh you know just back to the old therapeutic mo- model <laughs> talk therapy it's true <laughs> it's true cuz uh, these conversations yeah you can you can you can even go depending on uh, how how it clicks with the person you can even go into other deep, more deeper aspects of what you're living through for sure yes Paul, I uh, before I ask you to to share uh, the where to find Trace McGill, etc. I just wanted to really thank you, and I really liked the fact that uh, in a way this interview uh, stemmed from the from as you said at the beginning from a transformation that you felt happened inside you that kind of reflects <laughs> what what's happening in academia, what has been happening in the last you know ten you know ten twenty twenty years, and um, it it's i'm really just really thankful of of all we talked about you know going from you know networking today as a way to take advantage let's say of this strange weird situation that we're living through to uh to inclusion and diversity i think that was a very important point and uh uh and you know me myself, I'm a, I'm a first generation. I was a first generation PhD uh, coming from abroad uh, here to Montreal, so I, I identify with that a lot. And um, uh, and also, it was really great to talk with you because of the 
kind of the 30,000 feet view you have on this issue because of having, because of teaching, because of having been in these, uh, you know, Canadian-wide and now McGill-wide projects that really kind of go to the heart of this question and, and, and seeing that you're so invested in uh, helping things change for the better in a way so that people who want, who have this curiosity, who want to work towards this goal can, you know, trust the system and dive into it and then come out winning and and having a, pr a productive life after on. I think, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just really, really happy we had this conversation. I mean, I'll just, I just mentioned one thing to you, uh, the work that you're doing, the work that we're doing, there's, <clears throat> work going on across Canada and in the United States and in Europe, uh, addressing how we can do a better job with uh, graduate education. But when we completed the white paper, I sent it to every dean, every grad dean across Canada. Mm -hmm. And the uptake was simply stunning. Mm -hmm. um, I sent it to the, the grad dean at University Laval. And I, I said, we just had it translated into French. And I'm really pleased to send it to you. And she wrote back to me like within 20 minutes on a Saturday <laughs> and said, oh, we already read the English version and we're sharing it among ourselves. <laughs> and we really want to be part of the work going forward. So I, I think it's so important to recognize that the universities are across Canada are thinking about how we can do a better job. It's a slow, slow process to change an institution like the university, but there's a real will to change. And it's great to hear and it's great to, to see. Paul, so... Now, where can uh, people find uh, Trace McGill? Trace McGill, all one word, dot com. Perfect. T-R-A-C-E, Trace, McGill, McGill, dot com. Excellent. That's it. And if, and if they want to reach out to you? Um, Paul, dot Yachnin, Y-A-C-H-N-I-N, at McGill, dot C-A. Perfect. Paul, uh, this was a great conversation. I, uh, I already said it, but I really, really enjoyed it. I think listeners can can take a lot from what we what we talked and have a lot of pointers to to go look. Uh, I really also feel that they can feel in, encouraged and also lower their anxiety a little bit from listening to our conversation. So thank you for having accepted to to come on Papa PhD. Thank you. It is a real privilege and a pleasure to talk to you. And that's it for this episode of Papa PhD. Thanks for tuning in. Happy sharing and see you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. 